Good morning, everyone. Um, um, so let's firstly uh, read chapter one from the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers, the prophets, by the prophets. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir over all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of right uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but a robe you, like a robe you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed." But you, you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. May the Lord bless us in the public reading of his word. So, uh, we're starting a new series uh, in the book of Hebrews today. Uh, when the elders first talked about this, I was encouraged with the thought now, the book, of course, is written to Hebrews, Jewish people. So the author presupposes readers who know their Jewish scriptures and Jewish culture well. Now, we, as non-Hebrews here, of course, are Johnny-come-lately. We don't have that natural base uh, we are what the Apostle Paul called 
grafted in. So what encouraged me is that as we go into the book of Hebrews, it will be something of discovering our new roots, Hebrew roots at that, and as we ought to, because that is how we receive our nourishment. And so this is how the book starts. So it's not like a letter at all, because it doesn't have the typical greetings that we would find uh, at the start of an epistle. And so without that greeting, we don't actually know who the author was. We know it was a man because of the grammar he used of himself later on. And he said he was not an eyewitness disciple. So he was not one of the apostles. But we do know that he was very good in Greek, and more importantly, with the Hebrew scripture, with over 80 Old Testament references, which his Jewish readers would have been at ease with. Now, um, even though the book was written to first readers who are different, very different to us, Yet I'm sure we will find that the issues are very relevant today to us because central to the book is the exhortation to not fall away from the faith when things get tough. All indications are that the book was written just a few years before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, so in a period of increasing persecution. So the author says, when persecution comes, don't fall back to the old ways. Stay strong, keep the faith, fix our eyes on Jesus, he who endured even the cross. And seeing how fast the norm of our society has slid in even just the last two to three years, this is a very current message to us. We already cannot just freely say what the Bible says. We can't prevent our young children being instructed against biblical truths. People get arrested for standing praying silently on their own in a public pavement in the protection order zone. There is growing pressure, and the pressure will be to just give way or give in and to just blend in with that society around us. And that is exactly what the book of Hebrews is addressing. For these Christians, these Hebrew Christians, the pressure was to just drop that Christian bit uh, the tempting voice says, don't be like, well, why don't you just be like everyone else? Just go back to Judaism. It's still the same God. You know, what's the big deal? And for us, it might be, well, I can still pray and worship in my own home. And what they teach in schools, well, I don't have kids there. 
What I can't say in public or on social media, well, no big loss because I don't say much anyway and I don't do Facebook. And all these a month for this or a march for that, well, I can just keep out of the way. You see, you see that is blending in. That is salt without saltiness. That is light covered up under a bowl. And that is church with no impact on society. And that is just what the devil ordered. A church that is just like the society around. A church that does not declare what the word of God says. And indeed, a church that takes its lead and boundaries from the society around or from the powers that be and calling it progressive or moving with the times. And the author of the book of Hebrews says, no, don't blend. Don't throw out Jesus just to blend in with the Jewish society around them. And so we find the author spends a lot of the book pointing out that the old Judaism is not the same as Jesus. Jesus is so much more superior in all different ways, more superior than the angels, than Moses, than Aaron and the priest, than the temple sacrifices, than the old covenant. Jesus is so much more superior to any and all these foundation elements of the old covenant religion. And that's what the first chapter, 10 chapters of the book covers. In Jesus, we have so unimaginably the very best of the very best. Therefore, and this is what, why the book then goes on to say, therefore, don't throw Jesus out and go back to as before. Instead, when the pressure is on, draw near to God, run with perseverance. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Don't grow weary, don't lose heart. And this then is the thrust of the book and the general background to keep in mind for the next three months. Uh, but for today, uh, with chapter one, the author's mind is on angels. Now, uh, we might just mentally brush this one aside because I suspect no one hears, uh, here would hold angels in such high regard so as to then need to be told, actually, you know, Jesus is superior. Now, our problem is we actually have too low a view of angels. To the Hebrews, you know, what really distinguishes the Hebrews from everyone else is the fact that God's law was given to them and not to the Gentiles. So picture Mount Sinai. At the giving of the law, a mountain burning with fire and darkness and smoke all around and trumpet blasts. You know, truly awesome sight. And in all this were angels. Indeed, Psalm 68 even speaks of thousands upon thousands. 
Now, God and his entourage. And when the Hebrews then see a Torah scroll, they'll remember how it came about, and they'll remember this spectacular sight. So no wonder the Hebrews have high regard for angels. Angels hand-delivered God's law to them, the very thing that marks them out as separate and as God's chosen. Now compare that to how the gospel has come. Mere men talking about a man, Jesus. No shaking mountains, no smoke or trumpet blasts, no fire and lightning, and definitely no angel in sight. So you can see how someone steep in a Hebrew upbringing might place angels a bit too high and Jesus a bit too low. And before we think, well, we would never do that, then let's just check what emphasis do we have when we go up for the spectacular with lights, smoke, flares, loud music, imageries, and so on. So might we also be too swayed by the stage and performance? Now, Paul uh, had to warn the Colossians against the worship of angels. It clearly was an early church issue. Angels are mere messengers. And that's what the word in Hebrew and in Greek means. Mere messengers. You know, like the delivery van. So not to be exalted at all. But the question for us would be, Do we lift up human messengers up too highly? Now certainly, the devil's ploy is to divert us, to talk about anyone else but Jesus. Be it an angel or some big name speaker, it doesn't matter. Anyone but Jesus is who he wants. And so the very first thing the author does here, before he talks about anything else, is to get us to look at Jesus. And that's what God's people coming together should do. Jesus first. And so the author says, In the past, God spoke by the prophets, but in these last days, God has spoken by his Son. So in the past, it was multi-ways, in multi-places, at various times, with multiple prophets and with multi-fragment messages. But now, God has spoken by his Son, singular. In the past, different messengers got different parts of the message. You know, Noah knew a little of God's salvation. Uh, Abraham knew it would be his seed. Jacob knew which tribe. David knew it would be his family line. And Micah told us the town of birth. Daniel told us when. And Hosea told us his resurrection on the third day. But no one had the whole message until Jesus. And in the Son, we have the message It's not even that Jesus speaks God's message the whole time, which is true enough. It is that Jesus is 
God's message in person. John called Jesus the Word. All that Jesus said, all that Jesus did, all that Jesus is, all of Jesus is God's message to us. Jesus is whom all the prophets testify to, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All prophetic roads lead to Jesus. And now the author will tell us seven things about Jesus. Seven, maybe because he's soon also going to quote seven Old Testament passages to show each time how Jesus, God's message, is superior to mere messengers, angels. So first up, Jesus is the heir of all things. And that means everything. The whole universe, seen and unseen. In Western thinking, the word heir there is like inheritance. Uh, it's not actually yours yet. But if you behave, then one day you get it. In Eastern culture, heir means entitled. It means having rights. It is birthright. Remember in the parable of the prodigal son, the father said to the older son, everything I have is yours. The son already owns simply because he is birthright son. Jesus always owned all things because he is the father's only begotten son throughout all eternity. But you know what that means to us? If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and be heirs of the kingdom which he promised. And the Apostle Paul even goes as far as saying, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Jesus' entitlement becomes our entitlement through him. And Jesus is fully entitled because he created it all, all things. Quite what is meant by all things? Well, Paul says, all things in heaven and on earth, all things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, all things physical, all beings, physical and spiritual, including the angels, all of them, good or bad, all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. And thirdly, he's the radiance of the Father's glory. It's a bit like we can't look into the sun because the glare and the brightness is so intense but we can see its light and radiance. And even as the radiance is not exactly the sun itself, yet the two are of the same substance. 
That's just a picture. But it helps us to see Jesus, very God himself, yet being the radiance of the Father's glory. We can't see the Father. God is invisible. But in seeing Jesus, we see all that God is. So much so that once uh, Thomas asked Jesus, uh, he asked him to show them, the disciples, the Father. And Jesus' replied was, I've been with you so long, do you still not realize? I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I'm the radiance of the Father's glory. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And Jesus can say just that because, fourthly, Jesus is the exact representation or the exact imprint of the Father. The word used here is that of an engraving stamp or a die, like in coin making. So the resultant coin is the exact imprint of the stamp. So the Apostle Paul uh, can say, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So not only does Jesus reveal the Father whom we cannot see, he is the exact revelation, the exact imprint. And next up, the author says, not only is Jesus the creator of all things, he's also the upholder or sustainer of all things. Jesus did not just create the universe, set it in motion, and then left, left it to run. No, the word here is active present tense. Jesus continually upholds and sustains, day in, day out, until the last day. We know about the swirling galaxies and the planetary orbits. Well, that's Jesus. We also, at the other end of the scale, know about momentum and movements of subatomic particles. That's Jesus. In him, in Jesus, all things hold together. So when Jesus is upholding both the astronomic and the infinitesimal, then we can be encouraged because he upholds us too, moment by moment. If Jesus can bring out the sun every morning and keeps the tides at bay, then he is all sufficient to sustain us in all our daily circumstances. In him, we live and move and have our being. And the sixth thing is Jesus has provided purification for our sins. Jesus has cleansed us. The word used here in the Greek Old Testament is the one used uh, for the Day of Atonement, um, where the high priest makes atonement or make a ritual cleansing by the blood of a goat. But it's an annual event that the high priest does. So the high priest has to do it year after year. Well, that means it has no lasting effect. But Jesus, as we will see in chapter 7 later, made a once-for-all sacrifice when he offered up himself as the perfect sacrifice. 
which is why the text here is in the past tense. Uh, Jesus has provided past tense purification. It is done. Single completed action. It's not a continual thing. Jesus has atoned. Done. And when Jesus is done, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the very fact, the mere fact indeed, that Jesus sits tells us he is royalty. Because only royalty gets to sit in the throne room. In 1 Kings 2, uh, when his mother came to see King Solomon, he had to tell the servants to go fetch a chair for Bathsheba. Because there was no chair in the throne room other than the king's throne. Because no one gets to sit unless you are royalty. Jesus is royalty. Jesus is king. Jesus sits in the throne room in heaven. And Jesus sits on the right hand uh, of the majesty on high, which is the place of honor. But also, to sit at the right means to enjoy favor. It means you're considered a delight. So Jesus is placed at the seat of highest honor to the pleasure and delight of the majesty on high. Psalm 110, uh, verse 1. This is King David speaking. And King David says, The Lord, and that word there is Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now here David tells of this incredible scene where God the Father, using God's name Yahweh, says to God the Son, using the title of God, Adonai, telling him, sit at my right hand. And Jesus then applied this psalm to himself when he was before the Sanhedrin. And he told them, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. So it was a pleasure and delight for God to exalt Jesus to the highest place and give him the name that is above every name. And having set up these seven credentials of Jesus, then the author gets to his point. Jesus really is superior to the angels in every way. He's not belittling angels, but as mighty and exalted and awesome as angels really are, Jesus is much superior still. And the author then begins uh, with the first of his seven Old Testament passages to prove his point. God calls Jesus son, singular. To which of the angels has God ever said, you are my son? None. Not even to Michael. And probably the author starts with this particular point 
because the Hebrew Bible does actually refer to angels collectively as sons of God. For example, in Job 1. Now, the NIV translates the phrase there as angels for us. But the more literal English translations, uh, uh, as you see there, ESV, King James, and so on, uh, the more literal English translations will follow the Hebrew Bible and trans uh, translate the phrase, sons of God. So that is how the Hebrews know angels and why, in part, they hold angels so highly. But sons of God is a collective term. So the author challenges his Hebrew readers. Does any angel even come close to being called son, singular, son of God? Well, no, none. And the follow-on quote uh, says almost the same thing, but this time it's from 2 Samuel. And 2 Samuel is where God is setting up the house of David. And God says, he will raise up an offspring after David who shall come from David's body. And God will establish his kingdom and his throne of his kingdom forever. So this royal son of David, the Messiah, will be God's son. Well, no angel ever has had royal blood. And the next passage is from Deuteronomy, but using the Greek Old Testament reading. Well, we all know, uh, it, just logic would tell us that the lesser worships the superior and not the other way around. Uh, so the author says, now scripture actually tells the angels to worship Jesus. So which do you think? Jesus or the angels? Which do you think is superior? And what does God say of angels? The author quotes Psalm 104, uh, which is a song praising Yahweh for his uh, greatness of what he does. And in verse 4 of that psalm, it says, He makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. So the angels are messengers and ministers in the sense of ministry, service. So God's angels are God's servants and messengers. Now contrast that to what God says of the Son. Uh, and the author quotes Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, Elohim. And then in verse 9, Oh, that's how. Your, therefore, Elohim, your Elohim, has anointed you. This is the Father calling the Son Elohim. This is the Father using the title of God on the Son. And here we see God assigning the articles of kingship to the Son. Now, the Son has a throne. The Son has a kingdom and the son holds the symbol of ruling with the scepter not only are angels never rulers and they are mere servants and messengers so this is how much more superior jesus is to the angels and next the author brings up 
Psalm 102, speaking of Jesus as creator, the creator who is eternal and unchanging, even as creation decays and wears out. So what comparison is there? Jesus, who pre-existed in eternity past, before creation, who then in time created the angels on day two, is the created even half comparable to the creator? And lastly, the seventh quotation in verse 13, which we've already seen, is from Psalm 110. Jesus sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is at the place of highest honor to the delight of the Father. Now, this particular fact is clearly a regular one in the book of Hebrews. Now, we have already seen it mentioned twice in this chapter 1, but it will come again in chapters 8, 10, and 12. And there are also something like 15 other mentions of this fact in the Bible, with direct quotation of, again, this uh, 110 verse 1, uh, direct quotation in Mark, Luke, and Acts. So this is clearly an important point for us. And it's important because this is the crowning glory of the Son's work on earth. But it happened out of our sight. Drawing on the vision given to Daniel, Jesus applied this to himself in answer to the high priest. So even though the authorities would soon kill Jesus and put him down in a tomb, yet he will be raised victorious over sin and death, raised back to life and be lifted up to come on the clouds of heavens, where he will be led in a triumphant procession, like the returning king victorious from battle. And he will approach the ancient of days, who will sit him down on his right-hand side. Now, that happened out of human sight because it happened in the throne room in heaven with the throngs of angels. And it's important that we know about it because it is the culmination of Jesus' work on earth. It tells us mission accomplished. It tells us that Jesus' work was completed 100%. Jesus sits because his work on earth was done. His victory is won, and so our atonement is secure. Christ is exalted, and the angels bow and worship the Lamb who was slain. You know, if our author had been shown what happened in heaven that day, like John was, then I'm sure he would have rendered his chapter 1 with describing this very scene that we have in the book of Revelation. But you know what is also really amazing? This Jesus, who now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, goes on to say, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me 
on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Where is Jesus' throne? At the right hand of the majesty on high. So what an astounding promise to those who overcome. To those who overcome, Jesus gives the right to sit with him on his throne at the right hand of the majesty on high. What an astonishing thing to come to those who overcome. So the question, overcome what? Well, this was said to the lukewarm church in Laodicea. So overcome, it's about overcoming the pressure to compromise, overcoming the pressure to give in under persecution and to become lukewarm or saltless, just going through the motions. Laodicea was known for water that had to be piped from five miles away. Um, those pipes still exist. And that water was tepid. It was so full of minerals, it just clogged up the pipes and left white residues everywhere. Take a mouthful and you'd rather spit it out. Pretty useless water. Pretty useless church. Not rivers of overflowing living water, but just tepid, docile, bland, lame. That is what happens when we give in to pressure, give in under pressure. We blend into our society and we become bland and tepid, good only for spitting out. And the author to the Hebrews say, keep the faith. Don't give in. Instead, be overcomers. Overcome the pressure to be conformed to this world. And what reward awaits for the overcomers? And what hope? So when the going gets tough, don't blend. Don't conform. Keep the truth. There is reward unimaginable for those who overcome. Hold out till the very end. And when we get to sit with the sun at the right hand of the majesty on high. Shall we pray? Father, we commit ourselves here, your people, into your hand. Safe hands, eternal hands, strong hands, secure hands. Lord, you have grafted us in. You did that. The branch cannot graft itself in. You did that. And we trust in you. We rely on you. We rely on the root. We rely on the vine. And we hold on to the vine. And Father, as the author to the book of Hebrews warns, and he speaks to us, and we see the surroundings around us, Father, 
Help us to stand firm, stand true. Help us to keep the faith. Yes, Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and nowhere else. Help us to be that church with salt. Salt that is still effective in society and light that shines out, not blocked off and blotted out. Father, we can't do that ourselves. We mustn't do that ourselves. We rely on you, Lord. So, Father, help us, give us strength, give us, raise our eyes to Jesus that we run this race with perseverance and not give way and not give in. Thank you, Lord, that we are secure in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.